Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, it is a fine day here on the Cinema Drip Podcast as we get to kick off a brand new blend of the month, and I gotta tell you, it's one that I'm excited about. Because this month we are taking a look at some of the films of M. Night Shyamalan, one of America's most uh, perhaps notable, I would say, auteur filmmakers. How are, you, how are you feeling about this month, Christian? What's what's your connection or, or relationship to Shyamalan? Well, before this blend started, I had seen Old and The Last Airbender. That 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 was my connection to the man. So not um, a lot, and also not uh, something that particularly made me want to watch more in the case of one of those two movies. I mean, they, Netflix is coming out with the live-action series later this year, which the creators famously walked away from. Indeed they did. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a thing there. Uh, outside of that, I did watch The Happening, which no. is... <laughs> so I'm entering this month great. Uh, uh, yes, another movie that is famously very bad. <laughs> So here, here, here's, here's what I will say, though. M. Night Shyamalan loves weird concept movies on budgets that are not that big. And I was trying to think of what other filmmaker he reminded me of, and he does remind me a little bit of John Carpenter, in that John Carpenter, whether adapting or taking or whatever... Concepts were exceedingly high and budgets were very low. And, you know, your mileage may run on him. And, no, it's not a perfect one-to-one comparison. But simply based on the themes that they choose to explore. That was the closest comparison I could come to. Yeah, Shyamalan is, he is a very profitable filmmaker. And if you look it up, you know, sometimes his critics come out of the woodwork when he releases a new movie. And it gets conflicting reviews or even you know, mixed or negative reviews, and people wonder, how does this guy keep getting money? And it's because you go online and you realize that his movies have brought in a combined $3.1 billion at the global box office. He, he had a run where almost every movie he made, from the, the Sixth Sense to After Earth, made over $100 million at the box office. There's only one that missed. And since then, he's had two more top that number. Even Old, which came out in 2021, kind of in a you know ongoing pandemic world, made $90 million against an $18 million budget. So he's consistently a profitable or financially successful filmmaker, and he always works with these interesting concepts. Like you said, he has made some adaptations, of course. The movie we'll be discussing today is an adaptation, but he's famous for these high-concept science fiction or fantasy or even horror-tinged stories, and working in these genres to entertain, to provide us wild twist endings, and and sometimes to work with heady themes like faith and religion and free will and and destiny. (laughs) And 
heroes and villains you know he's he's working in very recognizable forms but with very unusual films and stories and that's obviously one of the reasons that he is important in america maybe maybe important is not even the best word just that he's notable he's beloved he is reviled he's he's many things but he's uh one of our most iconic american filmmakers of the last 25 years and i'm looking forward to looking at some of his movies this month um, I'm like you, Christian, and I'm not a very experienced um, watcher of his movies. I've seen The Last Airbender. <laughs> I have not seen it since that first time in theaters. I have seen Old, but I'm pretty sure the only other movies of his that I know that I've seen is Unbreakable, which is one of those movies where back in the day, my dad was like, oh, this one's great. You got to come in. And we just It was on HBO or something. He pulled me in and, and I watched the rest of it with him. So I'm really excited to get to dive deeper into some of his movies, especially the ones that we'll be looking at from earlier in his career. So, of course, we are here today to discuss Knock at the Cabin. His new release came out, as we're recording, came out the previous Friday from from today, and was the number one movie at the box office last week. It finally dethroned (laughs) Avatar. Uh, I think it was the first movie to do that since Avatar came out. So congrats to M. Night Shyamalan. James Cameron might be king of the box office, but M. Night, is he's like the, the duke of the box office, maybe? Like the earl <laughs> of the box office? The, the <laughs> Oh, there's... Yeah, yeah, he's the earl, yeah. <laughs> and it's received some pretty divisive reactions. There are some people proclaiming it his best movie since fill in the blank his best movie since signs his best movie since unbreakable and there are some people who are saying it's you know it's a crappy m night Shyamalan movie he should have made it blah 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 so it'll be fun to get your reaction to this christian and and try to hash out mine Um, in terms of some other notable uh, behind the scenes folks here Shyamalan directed and wrote the screenplay with steve desmond michael sherman It was based on the book The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay with some notable changes. Um, I I haven't read the book. I don't know if you have, so I don't know if it's worth getting into that. But I read up on the ending of the book. It is very different from the movie. So I wish we were more experienced with the book and could talk about some of those differences. But also a small cast here, uh, primarily taking place in one location. But we have a family played by Ben Aldridge, Jonathan Groff, and their adopted daughter, Kristen Cooey as well as the four people who knock at their cabin, led by Dave Bautista and also starring Nikki Amuka-Bird, Abby Quinn, and Rupert Grint. So, Christian, I, I, I do want to ask, what were your feelings just on, before we get into our full review, your feelings on Knock at the Cabin before I, I asked you to, um, actually, I was going to say I asked you to watch it, but strangely enough, I told you we were going to do M. Night Shyamalan Month, but then I said we were going to do this episode first instead of The Sixth Sense after you had seen this movie. So what were your kind of like just thoughts and and vibes going into this, not even knowing that we were going to talk about it for the show? The trailer looked fascinating to me. I will say I I, I really enjoyed this trailer because it's condensed kind and the movie itself is pretty much one location with very, very slight deviations on that but in one location someone saying Dave Bautista's character saying you will have a difficult choice to make in order to save the world you know you get my attention because I want to find out why figure out why so I knew that we were going to do this month and I I was interested in what he was trying to pull off so yeah that's 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 kind of like you had me in the hook now I needed to see if you could deliver 
All right, and, and we'll do a quick plot mention here um, before we get into our review, just in case. Obviously, this is a new movie especially, so in case people have not gotten a chance to see it. Uh, as I mentioned, there's kind of two groups here. There's a, a family and these people who come and knock at their cabin. But the family, who are Eric and Andrew and their adopted daughter, Wen, go off to a cabin in the woods for a little family getaway. And while they are there... Leonard, who is Dave Bautista's character, Leonard and his group of uh, fellow, uh, I guess, uh, <laughs> uh, people who have re- all these people who have received visions. Let's let's say that's what they are. Uh, this this small group of people arrive at their cabin, demand entrance, and force their way in when they are not welcomed. When they are inside, they tie up Eric and Andrew, and they tell the couple that they need to make a very hard choice. And if they do make that choice, it will prevent the apocalypse. And that choice, which I, is, you know, it's set early on in the film, so I, I'm not, I don't think this is a spoiler, but they do say that the family will have to choose someone to sacrifice to prevent the apocalypse. So Eric and Andrew are forced to figure out what to do and how to get out of this situation without sacrificing anybody, while increasingly strange events happen around the world that may or may not be giving credence to Leonard and his band of followers, and they have to figure out what is going on and how to stop it. So, Christian, yes. are you ready for your opening question? I'm ready for my opening question. So I'm glad that you brought up uh, kind of your, your intrigue about, around this movie was based on the concept, because that's what I want to talk about first. It's just this narrative. Um, just in looking at some of the reactions to Knock at the Cabin, I feel like a lot has been made, especially by film critics, about some of the central tensions and the themes of the story uh, between faith and doubt or religiosity versus grounded in the natural world, however you want to call it. But before we get to any of that, were you compelled by the narrative? And were you compelled by the narrative in a way that you wanted to think more deeply about the themes or did Shyamalan lose you with his attempts at twists and turns? Okay, yes, I was compelled by the narrative, but I was not compelled by the narrative because of the themes, if that makes sense. It, it, it wasn't it, it, it wasn't like I was trying to decide for myself whether the apocalypse was actually going to happen. Honestly, the second that this movie started, I go, if this isn't actually the apocalypse, this is not. <laughs> like, I, I, I assume the apocalypse is actually going to happen. That's just, that's, that's, that's my baseline. I'm assuming some other people also go into that. I was compelled because of the four strangers and their different personalities in needing to tie up these people. Specifically, the dichotomy between Rupert Grint and Dave Bautista. In, in, in terms of Rupert Grint, um, he's not frail, but he's very skinny, or, or at least much skinnier than Dave Bautista, and uh, is angry exceedingly. And Dave Bautista is taking up this entire frame, and, and much has been made about this. There are extreme close-up shots where his his face is like over, it, it, it's out of frame. And and talking in such a peaceful voice, stating how he doesn't want to do what he's doing. And so it's more so the character motivations and the performances are what compelled me in the narrative. I, I mean... Those performances, like the, these characters that we're working with are so fascinating because four of them are playing religious fanatics. <laughs> and we, I think Shyamalan does a pretty good job of convincing us that these people, they might be crazy, but they're not detestable, which is 
which is so important just for keeping us invested in this movie because obviously you want your protagonists to get out of the tricky situation you want eric and wen and andrew to escape and with everybody intact and you want the apocalypse not to happen and all that but he Shyamalan really gets us invested in leonard and the these people and Dave Bautista, you know, much is being made of his performance here, but he is just becoming one of the most fun actors to watch in Hollywood. Uh, Leonard is a very different performance from the one that he gave in Glass Onion, where he played sort of a send-up of these alpha male influencers while getting embroiled in the murder mystery on on the uh, Greek island there. And Leonard is so different because he is... Despite his imposing frame, he is calm and reserved. He's absolutely dedicated to what he's doing, and he won't let anything stop him. But he believes with the whole of his heart sincerely that violence is not the answer and, and that people cannot be compelled to make these choices. They have to do it with their, you know, honest-to-goodness heart. Okay, is, is Dave Bautista our modern-day Arnold Schwarzenegger? Our modern-day Schwarzenegger, he's not, because if he were our modern-day Schwarzenegger, he'd be making movies where he's off in the jungle hunting aliens, or he's... What else does Schwarzenegger do? (laughs) He's like uh, a robot hunting down Sarah Connor, you know? And yeah, Schwarzenegger had some comedic chops and made movies in that vein as well, but you know, if you look at some of the, the quotes that Batista has made about his career recently... It seems like his genuine desire, despite his WWE upbringings and coming out of professional wrestling, his genuine desire is to be a good actor. And he wants to make interesting films and, and work with talented directors. That, that seems to be his, the thing that he's most interested in. And sure, he's made some action movies and he's in the Guardians of the Galaxy, but I'm not sure. I think he's a little bit different from Schwarzenegger in that way. I, I, I will say that, especially coming off of Dune, and also the um, uh, not just not just Dune, but like you said, Guardians, and, and even his presence in in the James Bond franchise. It, it does feel like sometimes he is cast because of how imposing he is, and because of this entirety of um, like this dichotomy between his menacing presence and then what he can use it for. Whether it be as the villain, whether it be outlandish and boisterous, or whether it is calm and reserved, or comedic, so it's uh, yeah. Schwarzenegger was the lead much more often in movies than Dave Bautista was. I, I I will give you that, but they, I don't know the 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 interest in how much they use their frame is is the similarity that comes to mind, but. Um, you wanted to talk, in the outline notes, you wanted to talk about doubt, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to get to some of the themes here. I, we, I know we got on a Batista rabbit trail there, which is always a fun rabbit trail to go down. But I am I, I have to agree that I was pretty compelled by the narrative as well. And I think this is just a well-executed-upon script in terms of just getting getting us in the doors with the crazy high concept and keeping our attention held throughout um so any are are there any particular moments in the story which of course without spoiling because this is a new movie we want people to go see this um we might do a brief chat about the ending and we'll give fair warning for that but this isn't like a review of a classic movie where we're going to be talking freely about spoilers so 
without spoiling any of these specific plot beats, Christian, any particular moments where you felt like you were really on the edge of your seat or, or Shyamalan had grabbed you by the by the neck and he wasn't going to let go? When, okay, what what is, there's, there's a part when we're digging into Redmond's backstory. And Redmond is played by Rupert Grint. That's his character. Yes. And it turns out that there is a chance that he could have been or 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 what had encountered this couple before. Again, the couple played by Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge, Eric and Andrew. Where I was, it piqued my interest a lot in the narrative, saying, "This is introducing enough doubt on the situation." Where I still believe that it is the apocalypse, but now I am wondering if each of these other three people also has backstory with this couple. Yeah, it's a great way of planting that seed of doubt for us, too, about what's going on. Because obviously our natural inclination is that these people are delusional. There's no way they've had these visions. The apocalypse isn't going to happen. (laughs) And if it is, it's not going to happen for a very long time. So what is going on here? But then they do introduce these threads. And this is from the book as well. So the original story has this thread, but even so that does introduce some doubt on the situation about what is going on, like this this potential history that they may have with the Redmond character. And so you do start to wonder, did they run into uh, one of the other women as a waitress? Did they run into her at some restaurant sometime? And, <laughs> and um, the other woman is a nurse. Did, did they see her at a hospital and they didn't even recognize her? And obviously the central couple being... Uh, two men in a same-sex marriage, there is this fear that they are being targeted for their sexuality and that they're becoming the victims of a hate crime. And that is, there is some resolution to that later on in the movie, but it's this great piece at the middle of the narrative that again, adds a little more complexity and adds some layers to the story. This could have just been a conventional thriller but by having these two men at the center it gives it something else to work with that you know that you could have told the story and had the couple just be a man and a woman or you know whatever you want and it could have worked but there is a little more flavor because of the fact that the main characters are gay now i i will okay i'm gonna i want to touch on that but i also want to refer to the times when they turn on the tv the times when they turn on the TV and we show we see um, news outlets talking about uh, different disasters that are befalling the U.S. or the world. Right. And Leonard, at the early on in their home invasion, he sort of rambles off this prophecy, things about how, you know, the sky will fall and disease will consume us and God, the fingers of God will strike the earth or whatever. And you say, okay, whatever, Leonard. And then they consistently refer back to it as they're watching these news broadcasts. But the news outlets, these news broadcasts, could, are, are, are vague enough to the point where I would understand the couple not believing it. Or they'll say that things started four days ago or, and are just getting worse now. Um, it isn't until later on do the news outlets get, I think, explicit enough for the couple for them to start believing. Now, I wanted to talk about um, about Eric and Andrew being a gay couple at the center of it. 
because I, I think it worked for me, and this is why, but there is a stereotype. Have you heard of the bring out your gaze stereotype in movies? Yeah, the, the kill your gaze uh, trope, yeah. as it's called. Yeah. And I, I was, I, I, I don't know, I did feel like it could be weird being like this gay couple with their adopted daughter are now needing to kill one of them and they are not allowed to be happy in order for everyone else to be happy. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky trope to work with, and uh, if if people are not familiar, it's called kill your gaze or barrier gaze. Basically, that the idea that LGBT characters are more expendable than heterosexual characters, they're more likely to die in any given story, and that they they're kind of destined for that. Kind of like red shirts in Star Trek, <laughs> if you're familiar with that, or like the joke that it's always the black character who dies first in slasher movies. You know, it, it, it's a trope like that. And so it is tricky to work with. I did see some folks talking about how they felt the movie sidestepped this because, in a way, because their identity is a key part of the story. And it's not like they are side characters who are forced to forced to die early no, on. No, they're at the center. Right. And it's it's their choice that is given the most weight. And one thing that's interesting about Andrew and, and Eric is that they, of course as with any couple they're very different personality wise Eric is played by Jonathan Groff and he is very easygoing and you get the sense that he is I, I, what's the best way of describing this he is so much less confrontational than Andrew who Ben Aldridge plays and Andrew is he's not afraid to yell back at Leonard when he's asking him to make this horrific choice and he's not afraid to defend Eric and defend when and, and get in the way and he is much much more emotionally volatile and, and much angrier than um, than his husband and of course they balance each other out in that way normally but this comes out in <laughs> this extreme situation and because of the the complexity of their relationship too which we get to experience through some of these flashbacks that Shyamalan introduces, and again, from the original novel, so that Tremblay originally introduced and that Shyamalan and his t writers reuse, um, we get these flashbacks where we see moments in Eric and Andrew's past, like an awkward dinner with someone's parents and their trip overseas to adopt Wen. We do get these little bits of their story that bring a lot of complexity to their relationship and, and a lot more reality too. It's, it's so much more authentic. It's something that you can recognize. Not everybody gets along with their parents, and especially when you're in a <laughs> you're in a same-sex relationship, and someone's parents aren't as accepting, or you're trying to do what you can to build your family, and it's not always easy to adopt for you know same-sex couples. And so, I think that is a pretty effective way of getting around the trope. Like you said, these people are their relationship is key to the narrative. They're the only characters who are forced to make this choice. There's no straight characters who get to. <laughs> sidestep the prophecy or whatever uh, granted we don't know the sexualities of the four people from the from this uh vision i will I, say oh, when yeah whatever they 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 said they when they when they found out the couple was gay and they were accusing them of being homophobic and 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 people who who, who hate them um they said no i don't have we don't have one bigoted bone in our bodies <laughs> and i i i, I did chuckle i i did <laughs> I, I, I did chuckle at that. Yeah. <laughs> the slightest hint of social commentary <laughs> tucked into uh, Knock at the Cabin here. 
So, yeah, I, I, now that we've kind of talked through the narrative a little bit here, Christian, uh, I do want to get to some of these themes that Shyamalan is working with. Oh, one last thing. Oh, yeah, throw it out. So Dave Bautista, in an interview, has stated that Austin Butler will not be using the Elvis voice in Dune Part 2. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, and it was in an interview for Knock at the Cabin, so I felt like it applied. Okay, good. So, yeah, so it fit. You could, <laughs> you could fit it in here. You know, Christian, would Knock at the Cabin have been a better movie if Dave Bautista used the Elvis voice while he played Leonard? <laughs> oh, um, no. Eric, Andrew, I need you guys to make a choice to save the world. <laughs> you gotta stop the apocalypse. You gotta do it for my mama. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Okay. So some of the some of the themes that we're working with here, of course, this is one major area where there have been huge proponents, huge fans of the film coming out and saying it's artfully done, and the huge critics who have not been as big uh, supporters of the movie said it's mishandled or or you know it's it's ugly even in its exploration of religion and faith, but there really is this tension between faith and doubt because we of course have the question of are Leonard and his followers like, is this, can, is this a conspiracy? Is this some big setup for a hate crime for their opportunity to like torture this gay couple and, and do something extreme to them? Or is it real? Is it really happening? And like you said, there's these news broadcasts and we get that first one and sure, maybe it's a coincidence. Then we get another one and we start to wonder, is this really happening? <laughs> and then in, the next one rolls out and although Eric and Andrew might disagree on the reality of what's going on, it seems like Leonard and his followers are more and more in the right. We also get this tension in Eric and Andrew themselves, which there's there's hints at how one of them is more religious and faithful than the other even. And so we can maybe get more into that, but I just cut you off, Christian, so go for it. I think that there is a dissonance here in that I didn't care if the end of the world was actually happening or not. Really, Christian? You don't care about the apocalypse? <laughs> not in a movie. Not in this movie. And, and, and now, that didn't stop me from enjoying this movie. But I think that that is interesting in that I immediately assumed, because of the way that movies and stories work, that the end of the, apocaly- the, end of the world was actually happening. Now... This tension between doubt and faith I found to be exceedingly obvious as to what they were trying to do. So it's 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 there is no subtlety in being like, we can't actively show you that the world is ending right now, except for the news. Um and and, and it, it's one of those where I could understand like the, the roadmap that Shyamalan had taken as a filmmaker to get to that point. And because I understood the roadmap, that that theme of it was not exciting to me. Because, cause, like, I get it, you know? They're in a cabin. They're isolated. They're not going to know. The world's probably ending because that would make for a more interesting story. And it was much more so, do these characters believe or how long will it take for this couple to believe in the end of the world? So to me, it wasn't wrestling between doubt and faith. It was more so, like, how do you convert? <laughs> How do you convert to this apocalyptic faith? Yes. Man, I I just did not really get that 
at all. I, I think partially because, sure, in many movies, the apocalypse is happening and we know it. And you and I even looked at some of these movies in our show last year. Um, but that is, that's the main question for most of the narrative is, is this happening or is it not? And it's raised as possibility that it's not throughout because we do get to see that the some of the news stories that they're talking about are not live, that they happened hours ago. And there is a good chance that Eric and Andrew being at this remote cabin on vacation with their daughter would not have been watching TV or scrolling social media and wouldn't have known. We also see one of the news stories that plays that they're referencing as this is the next piece of evidence in our story here that it's pre-recorded and they can point to that and say this story you probably had seen before it probably happened days ago weeks ago even and they're bringing it back and and, and so i did not get the sense that the apocalypse is really happening and honestly the way that i went into this movie was i assumed that leonard and his followers were fanatical they were delusional and I needed to be convinced that they weren't. <laughs> and part of that is also the way that they conduct themselves, of course. We, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about this, but Leonard and the gang break into the cabin. There's some violence, of course, that actually results in... Sorry, excuse me. That actually results in Eric being concussed. So he spends... There, there's even that tension where Andrew is of his right mind and Eric is trying to collect himself, can't think as quickly... And so they're tied up in these chairs. One of them is injured and they're trying to care for their daughter amidst it all. As these four people describe these visions that they've been having that has caused them to leave their lives behind. And we find out more about them and what they do. And that's how they start. <laughs> like once they tie the, the couple up, then they kind of provide these backstories like, hi, I'm Sabrina and I, this is what I do and where I'm from. And, they start talking. That was so funny to me. It was it's very like, hey, <laughs> offbeat and weird. Yeah, we we've tied you up, but look, this is my name. I'm some. I'm a nurse. Hi, I'm Adrian. I'm a. I'm a chef. I'm a cook. I have a son. Like right. Dope. Right. And right. they, you know, it's I, they were trying to convince me as much as they were trying to convince Eric and Andrew that they weren't crazy. In, in my opinion, did they succeed? I mean. I think the movie, unfortunately, maybe not not unfortunately, but unfortunately for this discussion, because I'm trying to avoid spoilers as much as we can, the movie does make clear what is going on, To in, in my opinion. Uh, and I think the ending is, there's a little bit of open-endedness to the ending, but it, I think the movie does kind of land on, on one side of things, and I'm not sure how I felt about that because i i really enjoyed being in this space of wondering if the fanatics were right or if eric and andrew were right and just needed to escape and that's that is what i appreciated about this kind of this this thing that we're working with of this you know religion versus doubt i think a lot of times religion is even especially in its worst it, when bad things happen religion is criticized for inducing people to these kinds of behaviors this sort of forward thinking you're only talking about the end of it all and the after you know, the apocalypse the afterlife 
you're not focused on the here and now and, and it leads you to do terrible things like tie up gay couples in cabins and force them <laughs> into a uh, choice of human sacrifice or apocalypse but wondering about what was real and what was fake was the most I, I almost like narratively satisfying piece of this story to me even though i think there were genuine thrills and we do get a couple more thrilling moments like there's a scene where Wen tries to escape the cabin obviously she's very small she's a young girl and can sneak in ways that her tied up parents cannot and so she tries to escape and leonard goes to look for her and that's a pretty tense sequence and it kind of gets us out the cabin for a second so there are those thrills but trying to figure out what was going on was i think the fun <laughs> of knock at the cabin and for a lot of people you know Shyamalan's movies they fall apart after the twist or is revealed or, or whatever it is but i feel like knock at the cabin is a movie that you could rewatch and still experience the same appreciation for the central tension yes i do think this is going to have high rewatchability and it, look the main thing about this movie and about most Shyamalan movies that i have seen the they last are airbender chief among them. <laughs> the last airbender chief. Look, the happening, I hate. I, I truly hate it. But there is, you don't know what's going to happen next kind of coming in. You don't know what decisions the characters are going to make next or do next. And maybe overall you can kind of guess where the plot is going. Like, yes, I can guess where the plot of the happening is going. But tension within the movie itself is working. So... Another piece here, I think, is um, between Eric and Andrew and their their own levels of religiosity, uh, which is, I would basically say it's it's almost just hinted at. There's a couple moments that make things somewhat explicit for it, but this is actually an area where I feel like we could have benefited from maybe one more scene, not necessarily spelling things out for us, not making it plain, but the tension starts to build between the two of them because we start to understand that Eric is a little more spiritual than Andrew. And there's a scene, like I mentioned, a flashback to them going to adopt Wen, and they're trying to conceal the fact that they are a couple because I, I don't think gay couples were allowed to adopt from China. Uh, I don't know if they are now or if they just weren't at the time in in the world when these two would have been adopting. But we do get the this moment where Andrew looks over at Eric and says, you can pray if you want to, I won't say anything, because they're sitting across from this, I guess, little picture of Jesus. <laughs> uh, I think it's Jesus in this orphanage or hospital or wherever they are, this building. And that's this like little moment for them. And then as time goes by, the problem for the couple becomes not only how do we get out of the situation, but... Eric, in his semi-concussed state, also starts to begin to side with the the invaders. Captors. Whatever, whatever, the captors. There we go. They're, they're, it's not like a cult or anything, but starts to side with them in, in some ways. And they consistently have to fall back on, you know, Eric and Andrew have to have these moments of these sides where they try to figure out what, you know, whose team everybody is on. What'd you make of the tension between the two of them specifically? Uh, because for me, I feel like we get a lot of their relationship, which I appreciate. I feel like we could have had a little bit more of of even just their own spiritualities and, and brought a little more depth to that. But what did you make of it? 
It's it's interesting that you bring this up because I both appreciated the flashback, but also feel like the flashbacks were incomplete. In that you could have had this entire movie without flashbacks. Would have been tighter. I don't I don't know if it would have been the best movie, but I can see a world in which we just see everyone's motivations without any of that coming forth from these flashbacks. You're including them and you're you're including them with different points in their relationship, which is building out their chemistry a little bit more. However, I don't think it's enough. And so, yes, I understand wanting either... It's, it's like a criticism I have before. Either give me a couple more flashbacks and extend them or take out all of them. And let me just figure out from how they're being held captive. Because Eric is very angry at, you know, being held captive. And at... Uh, no, not Eric. Andrew. Andrew is very angry at being held captive and of having his husband be... Um, concussed which explainably so and the flashbacks allow us to round out the rest of his emotions and that yes he's a little bit you know more on edge than eric is yes andrew has a little bit more energy and like spark to him than eric does and eric is just wonderfully well reserved and has um had a fantastic support system and, and knows how to think through events and all of that could only be achieved because of these flashbacks yeah, I think it's it's important to fleshing them out as individuals because they they get put in this extreme situation very early on. The we haven't really talked about the beginning yet, but the movie opens with when out in a field collecting grasshoppers because right now she's a kid and she's into bugs and she's studying these grasshoppers and Leonard walks out of the woods and introduces himself to her and they you know they start talking about grasshoppers and then he says i want to be introduced to your parents and then she runs back and the movie begins um so by providing these flashbacks we get to see these two in normal moments much much more natural than this situation that they're in and it helps us understand who they are as people a little bit more and not just see andrew as this angry shouting family defender guy that we've seen in a million other movies but we, we do get to see that side of him, but we also get to see his his why, if you will. We get to see the moments he has connecting with Eric. And we get to see the, the joy they experience when they first meet when. And we get to see a moment that surprised me was not at the beginning because it's in the trailer. But we get to see their family car ride out to the cabin and they're, they're dancing along to boogie shoes. And <laughs> maybe not dancing because they're driving, but singing along to boogie shoes. And they're just this... this beautiful little idyllic family and, and you get to see these moments but between these uh <laughs> terribly tense uh situations that they're in with these fanatical cultists that's all i have i think on on the movie i i am curious christian if any moments of just filmmaking stood out to you in, in terms of how Shyamalan was using the camera or anything like that. I, w I want to say this is shot by two people, actually, which is somewhat surprising because it's such a small-scale movie for the most part. But it's shot by Yaron Blaschke, who a lot of people might know from The Lighthouse, earned him an Oscar nomination, and Lowell A. a. Meyer. They're the co-cinematographers here. There are multiple times when action is happening that the action will occur off-camera. And the or, or outside of the cabin might be a better way to say this. And the camera, instead of following them, will linger on someone else watching the action happen and the horror on their face. 
there are some I, violent rituals to what Leonard, rituals. Leonard and his collaborators here what they need they feel they need to do as as per the visions they've received and all that and i think that that worked a lot for me the the ability to view horror coming off of people instead of violence to induce it because it would be a very different movie if we i think they would be much more fanatical in our eyes if we saw the effects of of the violence yeah, there's a trashier version of Knock at the Cabin where there's there's no flashbacks. It goes from an hour 40 to maybe a tight 90 minutes. <laughs> and we get to see these brutally violent rituals on screen. And Shyamalan holds back any blood or, or gore or, or anything. Anything that could be violently scarring really is off screen, like you said. And... I really think that it kind of keeps the attention off of the violence and off of any sort of like moments of peak excitement, like the movie hitting a peak of excitement, I should say, and keeps it focused on the characters and on the themes that he's trying to unpack. It's a really interesting choice and one that I appreciated more after after the fact, because I think in the moment it's like, well, why are we cutting away? We're not we're not like kids here, you know, we don't need to like hide this, but I appreciated it more when I thought about it and it, I was not just in the theater watching the movie. Uh, th- this is also just, it, it just looks really good. <laughs> the movie itself just looks very, very just well-made. And I, I'm trying to find the actual story here just on how they did it. Cause they used, that's right. So they shot the film with, lenses from the 90s and there was an intention to give it an old school quote-unquote look and it definitely has that feeling going for it as well Uh, that old school tens kind of home invasion thriller which is not a genre that gets made a ton anymore and and the movie itself just uh, again it's like one of those where despite the fact that it's in a prime one primary location with occasional flashbacks it consistently looks really good and there are little little moments and images that stick in your brain i think um two that actually involve batista that came to my mind number one at the beginning when when he's introducing himself to when we get this shot of his giant hand <laughs> reaching out <laughs> to shake her teeny little hand and just one of those memorable images. I'm sure we could maybe unpack some meaning behind it, but that whole opening is so well done. And Shyamalan ratchets up the tension at one point by going shot reverse shot between the two characters, but going closer and closer to their face each time, which is such a brilliant way of making us as the audience uncomfortable at what's going on. Because imagine if you were out in real life and you were talking to someone and they took a step towards you every time they finished speaking and you started talking, <laughs> you know, it's like they're getting closer and closer to you. It, it would make you feel a little bit off. And by zooming closer and closer to Batista's giant face and making Kristen Cooey's face also very giant, even though she is a very small person right now because she's like eight years old uh it's a brilliantly effective way of of getting us into the the mind like the mode that knock at the cabin is going to work in there's also this other little moment that stuck in my mind where 
at the initial invasion, Redmond, Rupert Grint's character, breaks once one of the first to break in, and he gets into an altercation with I think it's Andrew. And Andrew is throwing punches and first hits him with his right arm and then comes back and hits him with his left. And we see as Redmond's like reacting to the punches, like he first drifts to his right and then to his left, the camera is held behind his head and it sort of swivels with him so that his head is always in the center of frame. And it was just one of these like wonky shots that was sort of you can feel the like let's try this let's see what this looks like let's let's do something fun here that i really appreciated um i had another batista moment but any any other moments of just the way the movie looked or particular scenes that stood out to you before i mentioned something else because i've been rambling for a while uh mainly the the way that something looked um so when when certain rituals are performed by the people, they will put on like these white ski mask like thing mask things. And I think they're they're so tight you can see the outline of their faces, of their facial features. Um the close up on that is is truly horrifying. Yeah. To see. Is. And I and I think it was a nice touch to focus in on them before these rituals occur. Yeah, it's it is pretty frightening, and and as we already talked about, they're not really showing any violence on screen, and so it's effective in giving us these unsettling close-ups uh, and and relying on the creepiness of what's going on to unsettle us more so than any violence that might happen. Um, the last moment I had of, of Batista that's kind of stuck in my head is his character near the end of the movie goes on to give uh, another speech. And he's doing so while sitting in a like deck chair and holding a knife to his own arm. <laughs> and they slowly push in on him as he's giving this speech. And it's one of those, again, moments where you kind of know what's about to happen based on some of the other things that have unfolded in the narrative. But you still feel that tension because we've seen more apocalyptic news broadcasts <laughs> and there have been all kinds of rituals and you just really don't know what batista is, is going to do even though you think you do and it's uh it's one yeah another great moment at the end of the film for his character um but at this point you know i i, I thought maybe it'd be worth talking about the ending but i don't think i want to i think you know maybe we can discuss I think people that. should yeah should yeah be able to see it we can discuss that offline maybe christian but that is knock at the cabin and i'm curious christian just because i know this was not a particularly um effusive conversation between us is this a movie you would recommend and if so I would. no no I, I i i am positive on this movie i i am also positive here not uh, you know it's the first movie that i've seen in theaters in 2023 actually i did not make it to the theater in january as <laughs> any catch-up i was you doing didn't watch megan I did not watch Megan. Uh, any catch-up I was doing was happening on streaming services or through Redbox. So it's nice to be back in the theater. I would definitely recommend people go check this out. And obviously, plenty already have. It, it had a $20, $21 million opening weekend, I'm pretty sure. So uh, a big debut. But we definitely encourage people to do it. This is just a kind of old classic, old classic, old-time classic thriller that looks good is fun to watch and you walk out of the theater with these deep and heady topics jumping around your brain 
uh, it's a good one. I'm not sure it'll be our favorite at the end of this blend because we're going to be looking at some interesting movies this month, but it's one that I think people should check out if they have the time. Tell the people we're going to do next, Scott. That's right, folks. I mentioned it earlier in the episode, so it may not come as a surprise, but of course, Shyamalan's breakthrough occurred in 1999 with a little movie called The Sixth Sense. So this is a movie that both Christian and myself have not seen. And I am going to make him watch it with me because I am really excited to finally cross this one off the old watch list. So, of course, if you have not seen The Sixth Sense with us, you should get in on that. Follows Bruce Willis as he, I think he's a a private eye or detective of some sort who gets involved in this case with this kid who, uh, you know, has this maybe... I Actually, you know what? I only know the twist of this movie. (laughs) So I don't even know how much how much of the twist is actually related to the the general plot of the story or when it happens. <laughs> so might not say anything. But Bruce Willis is in it. Haley Joel Osment is in it. His his young career beginning. Tony Collette is in it, folks. She was actually nominated for an Oscar for this movie. So all the people who were angry she didn't get a nomination for Hereditary should check it out. I don't believe it is currently streaming anywhere, unfortunately. Apple TV was doing a run of Shyamalan movies on their service that you could watch for free because he has a show with them called Servant. And so a new season of that came out and they were pushing it by having some of his movies available to stream. But in the month of February, they took them down and put up a bunch of romantic comedies, which I don't blame them for, but I do wish... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, we had swapped our blends. Uh, yes, that we had swapped our blends and we could have watched Shyamalan in January. But no matter. This is an easy-to-find movie. You can rent it. Uh, you can borrow it from the library. I'm probably going to have to check out the library. Christian, I'm sure that you are going to do it. But yes, please do check out The Sixth Sense with us for next week. And until then, that is our show. No twist ending here, folks. We are, are just talking the normal outro here. So, of course, if you have reached this point in the episode... Thank you so much for listening. Glad you are are still here knocking at the cabin with us, and we appreciate your time and listening to this episode. There are a few things that you can do to continue to support the show. Number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review if applicable. Helps us grow on those platforms and reach new listeners, so it is sincerely appreciated when folks do leave us a review. Please drop us a five-star review, give us a, a rating, and give us a little review. We'd love to see your words as well. You can also send us some feedback to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. We regularly check that inbox for listener feedback, and we have incorporated listener feedback into blends of the month. We have used movies that people recommended. We have welcomed people onto the show after they wrote in. And even if you just want to write in and tell us a specific Shyamalan movie you want us to talk about, because things are not totally set in stone yet maybe you want us to talk about signs maybe you want the happening episode you want me to watch the happening too (laughs) maybe you want us to look at something more recent like old we would really love to know what you want us to talk about and what movies you're interested in listening to conversations about so please do send us your thoughts at cinema drip podcast at gmail.com you can also follow myself and the show on twitter Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? No. Just... No, I'm, I'm tired, because it's morning time. <laughs> it's morning time, and so Christian is tired, but I have to go to work, folks, so i got to end this episode here. Until next time, this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast. <laughs>